Welcome to Watershed Chats, a solution-centric mini-series of the Water People podcast. Here, we connect with folks who are transforming social and environmental challenges through their work and play. This episode is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. I'm Lauren Hill, my co-host is Dave Rastovich, and today we're in conversation with Indigenous Australian artist Mick Laurie, a Gumbangir Yegel musician and storyteller from the Clarence Valley in northern New South Wales. Mick is based near the mouth of the Clarence River, where his forefathers have lived and cared for country since time immemorial. Mick carries on this ancient tradition of obligation and responsibility for land, sea, story, and culture as a beacon of hope and creative inspiration. You may have heard Mick's music if you've seen Torin Martin and Ishka Folkwell's Lost Track Adventure Surf series, and we had the pleasure of hearing Mick play live at the Surfrider Foundation's celebration of founding a Northern Rivers chapter in our region, and he blew us away with the timelessness of his music and his courageous vulnerability on stage. We wanted to share some of that event with you, so we'll begin there. Just an audio note. It was a live event, so you'll hear plenty of venue chatter and the footsteps of children running through gravel. And then later, when we sat down for a chat, an afternoon storm set in, so you'll hear plenty of rainfall and bird chatter as well. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bundjalung and Gubby Gubby nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. That's a good old song, that one. Um, it comes with a dance, and it's about, you know, I guess a test for our young men too about the endurance. So when we celebrate and do robbery and our dance, um, our Ilma, we call it up in Yaga country, it's about that dance, you know, like it's about getting out of your head, and that song and that dance is like a trance. You know, I, um, I was wrestling with a few things last week. I, um, had a really tough week, I guess, um, leading up to this. And it was really just a, a really low point. And I'm all about love and care and unity, and that's so much about what our culture's about. But also, you know, I, I had to be authentic and I had to talk my, speak my truth as well about some of the struggles we have as Aboriginal people in our, in our communities, and we still go through it. 
you know, so I got angry, <laughs> I got sad, but as a lot of Aboriginal people, it's, it's, that's a process that we all have to go through. We lived in a really beautiful way 230 years ago. You know, we have lived here for over 80,000 years and we lived in a way that we were connected with everything. We lived in a way that we had no waste. <laughs> we had no mass murderings here like other countries. We lived in a way that we shared everything with each other, you know, and when we were invaded and our land stolen, that just tore our world apart. So, as I said before, I'm a Yagel man and um, my dad grew up and my grandfather was born, and my great-grandfather was born in the middle of the Clarence River, Alagundi Island, near Harwood. And you know, all that stuff I share is for them old fellas and my old women, you know, them old beautiful old women in my life, and them old ancestors. So, you know, I have to, like I said, I have to speak my truth and talk about some of the atrocities that have happened. So, in Yamba, being a traditional custodian doesn't feel like that sometimes, you know. I live in a beautiful place called Woolawaya, and Woolawaya means big cedar trees. There's not many, there's no cedars left there anymore, you know, so. And there's not many black faces in Woolawaya. You know, one of our prized camps has just been taken over, and it's, for me, that's really hard. When I drive in, I see the sign, and I look over to the left, and there's a really sacred mountain called Bigan. And there was a mountain where our old men went, to become clever, Norlingius, clever man, to be fully connected, their last ceremony before they go off. And on top of it now is a Telstra Tower, you know, so making everything, making people more disconnected, you know, so I always think, oh, it sucks because them old people used to go up there to, to do that, but now there's a, there's a transmitter or a device up there that you know, powers things that make us more disconnected than ever, which is sad, you know, so. And also, I live with my brother Drew McPherson. Thank you, Drew, for organising a lot of this. Man, much love for you, brother. Um, give him a round of applause, hey? And there are, there are beautiful people in Woolawaya, like some of my best friends are in Woolawaya. Um, but, you know, sitting on the back veranda with Drew and having a cuppa and there's a vacant block behind it. <laughs> and I just think, like, wow, like, um, my old people used to camp there. And, um, you know, unfortunately for Aboriginal people, we would never be able to afford to buy a place like that. The block of land just sold for 800000 And I started to get angry. I was like, why should, like, why, why does this happen, you know, why, like... We got, my old people got murdered and killed and pushed off, you know, our lands, you know, by the cedar getters and by, by Europeans. And it was, it was really tricky. It's a really tough pill to swallow. You know, then I go to the community where my dad grew up down at Pippi Beach, you know, Yamba, one of the most beautiful spots in the world. And my dad grew up there with a big family. Um, and I go up there now and pick a couple of boys up. You know, I work with I work as a youth worker in the community. So I go down there and pick them boys up and take them to school. And unfortunately, the place itself is is really, you know, it's it's torn apart. The houses are burnt out. There's a lot of issues in my community. 
and they're not our issues, you know, they were bought here. But we've got to deal with them now. And when I pick these boys up who they don't feel like they fit into a society, and when you drive out of the, the mish at Pippi Beach, there's a big wall there. And across the other side of the wall is all these housing development. And I get sad again. Because we, as traditional owners, that's how we're treated. You know, it's, it's not good. <laughs> we deserve to be treated better than that. Our old people didn't get killed and murdered and raped for that. So I feel sorry for them young boys who have to endure that every day. They must feel that unwelcomed. They, they do. They told me. Our suicide rate is the highest in the world. Last, last month, I lost a cousin. He's my age. I grew up with him. He was hanging in a tree for two weeks out in the bush before anyone found him. This Friday, I'm burying another little cousin 26, died in prison. It's not right. We have a group of people that have looked after this country for tens of thousands of years and this is how we get treated in this world. It's not fair. So there's all the truths I had to kind of sit with and endure. You know, I guess sometimes I feel this world isn't geared for us. You know, it's, it's not a place where Aboriginal people feel safe sometimes. I'm a traditional lawman. I've got my brothers here tonight. We do ceremony. We do what we've always done for, ten, you know, a long, long time. And that gives us a connection to everything. Unfortunately, we don't have the land or places to go to do our sacred ceremonies in this place which again adds to the disconnection of what our young people have to endure. You've got these young fellas taking their lives because they're not fulfilled as men. You've got young girls hurting themselves and having sense of you know, identity issues because we don't know where we fit. I appreciate everything that people do in regards to advocating for Mother Earth and our climate and all the, you know, I guess all the stuff that is happening to our Earth with all the, you know, destruction and the mining and the offshore gas wells or whatever they're called, you know. They're not our problems either, you know, but we have to deal with them and we don't have a voice. So it's sad. I had to share that because <laughs> we share our, our good parts of our culture. We've got to share the, the stuff that's happened to us, no matter how we feel. I um, grew up here in the Clarence Valley. I grew up in Grafton, so just 
on the upper side of the Clarence River. So yeah, I'm really blessed to come from a strong Aboriginal family. Um, my mum's a, a Goombanga woman with connections around the Grafton area to Nimboida, to Biripai country, down further south around Port Macquarie. And my father is a Yagel man from Yamba. So it's really a big privilege to be living here on country where my forefathers grew up. So yeah, I've always loved the Clarence Valley and um, not only for my reasons of experiencing my own life here with building connections with friends and family and places, but also my ancestral connection, I believe. My forefathers, my grandfathers, my great-grandfathers were born on the Clarence River. They were born out in the bush. And so it's much more than my life experience here on during this time, but connecting with the story and the old people and the rivers and the waterways and the coast, that makes me feel really wholesome as a person and adds so much to my identity to who I am now. You know, mm. it's really nice to drive through country and remember or think about how times may have been for my ancestors and always walking with me. So I love the valley um, and I've still got so much more to learn about it and connect with. So I really like the stone canoe story that comes around here, especially because it's such it's a part of a bigger story which goes all the way up and down this coast and the story changes along the way, but the values and the morals are, are still the same in these stories. So, yeah, the Stone Canoe story is a massive story around here and it involves a really powerful old woman who goes by the name of Dragon. So the Dragon woman was a clever old woman who had special powers. She lived by herself. A lot of People of higher knowledge and higher degrees live by themselves. So she was an old clever woman. And she had a son who lived down the coast a little bit further. And um, the son lived with his two sons and a wife, his wife. So they lived in a little village and they had their own camp and everything was really good. Until one day the wife fell really sick and died so the father and his two sons are really upset and grieving so they jumped in their canoes we would travel a lot by canoes around the coast here so the father and the sons wanted to go visit the old dragon woman to spend time with her so they went on their way and when they got to the camp the father knew that his mum was greedy and a bit spiteful and wouldn't share his stuff but they wanted to go there despite all that they wanted to spend time with her so they went there and this old lady didn't share her things with the boys she wasn't very considerate she wasn't showing the boys where things were in her camp and so the father and the sons endured it for a little bit but one one night the Father said to his boys, in the morning, boys, we're going to get up early and we're going to go, we're going to go up north, we're going to go up to you know, Bunjilung country. So they got up early and started to paddle in their canoes. And this was uh, a period where the waves weren't that big here, it was more of a flat. 
So the guys started to paddle north and the old dragon woman got up and she was looking everywhere for her boys. And then she went down to the shore and because she's an old clever woman, she could see vast distances. And she saw her son and her two grandsons in the canoe traveling north. So the old women had these old digging sticks and they'd carry them around. And this old woman had a particularly powerful one where she could use her magic, I guess. So she grabbed her digging stick and she jammed it into the shore and she started to sing. And she started to sing the waves in and the waves got really, really big. And she'd done that to bring her boys back. So the waves got so big up north that it capsized their canoe and the boys and the father and the son drowned in that process. And they fell to the bottom of the ocean and turned into stone. So there's a reef up north, just north of Ballina, where the boys now rest and the father and the sons rest. And part of that stone canoe, because the waves were so savage and brutal, it smashed that canoe up and broke it into smaller pieces all along that coast around Boulders Beach up to Lennox. So that's one of them stories that holds so much value in regards to how we treat people and and that connects us to our places and it also connects us with our neighbours in, in the sense of the Bunjalung mob up north and it connects us with the bigger story of that canoe that goes up and down the coast. Yeah, so it teaches us so much in regards to not abusing our power if we're mm-hmm. in a position of power and mm-hmm. doing something that we might think... It's good for someone else, but it might be detrimental to their, their journey. So, yeah, so much, you know. Yeah. We have, <laughs> there's so much you could unpack that story and, and get a lifetime of lessons and learning out of that. It also traces the ecological changes that, it does. that your ancestors would have witnessed over time as sand shifted and flat water turned to, yeah. to wave action. For sure. Um, yeah, there's so much in it. So much, and you're right, Lauren, like, when we visit these places, you know, like it's, it's, that's how we made sense of how things are. <laughs> and often they were linked with, with their morals and values on how we treat each other. And, mm. and then we re- have these places as highly revered sacred spots that we love and connect with because we go there and share energy and we share story and we share knowledge and we share we give back to them places because they give us so much so Mm. um yeah and we and around the changes of earth i I guess we've always endured it as people it's just that in my old people's time and and place we had a story that fit in with our lifestyle i guess um not so much the case today with um with with a lot of climate change and and stories so, um, yeah, we made sense of that, mm. which was great. And um, you adapted to those changes in yeah. ways that, you know, we're really having to, f- well, in different ways, but in ways that our modern culture is having to um, look back and really acknowledge how, how ingenious your people were, how ingenious Indigenous people all over the world were to be able to move with the changes and move camps as sea levels rose and follow food as the seasons shifted. Yeah. There's just so much wisdom there. There is, yeah. I can imagine it would have been a real 
beautiful way of living in them older times of, of moving with land and country and connecting with other mobs around and sharing story. And so, yeah. I was speaking with Lauren earlier about how, as a young surfer in this country, being in places that, you know, you dearly love, you're growing into and out of these places as a young surfer and you see older surfers that really love these places too, so places Mm. like the point down the road and Mm. stuff, and feel like you have this connection to these places. But but there was never any discussion like what we're having right now with anyone from First Nations groups in those surfing circles when I was a kid at all. It was just not around. Mm. It was not those relationships, those communications just didn't seem to be happening the way they are now, mm. Mm. which feels really hopeful and mm. feels positive and feels really necessary and worth cultivating and nurturing yeah. and growing more. Um, are there examples or, or things that come to mind when you say there's movement yeah. in a positive direction? For sure. I think as a society, people are exposed to a number of things, whether that sinks into their consciousness and then plants a seed for later learning, whether that be the amount of language revitalisation that's going around in Australia, media, a lot of... Aboriginal people are on media now and and what comes with that is the sharing of story, um, our languages, our, our dances, our songs. So all that is all prevalent in society now, which kind of gets people to think as well. Um, I guess mainstream, like schooling as well, it's a lot of um, Aboriginal education being pushed in the curriculum at schools, which Mm. not only for Aboriginal kids but for non-Aboriginal kids sparks that learning and then Mm. they come home and talk to their parents about stuff and their parents might be intrigued. So there is that. Um, I guess the access to information these days, a lot of people with the internet, can can carry out their own research of the local area which might lead into a path of connecting with Aboriginal people in the area to to learn story but yeah and also you know it just depends on your circles as well like I think Mm. people who are interested to learn about things often get guided to spaces where they can achieve that and um, I guess there is a long way to go but them places that you were talking about too, Dave, like mostly on the coast, like the Angari and Lennox and Crescent Heads, like all really beautiful spots that hold a lot of story. And and I think as time goes by, we'd love to share more of that story so people can visit them places and respect them places and mm. and also acknowledge the the history of the connection that Aboriginal people have to them places. Mm then that kind of creates a more of a deeper connection for people as well, knowing that it's not just a place to surf, but it's a place maybe I could participate in other Mm. things that connect me with that place deeper or connect with my family deeper. So, yeah, I think we can do better in acknowledging our connection to them places of importance now for a wider community you know, whether that be sharing story on boards or Aboriginal signage. Um, Mm. Lucky enough to be part of a group of um, families on the 
um, in Yeagle country to have native title. Um, so that Can you explain what that means for people who aren't familiar with that concept? Yeah, so native title is a agreement with the government for traditional custodianship for people living in that area that have a connection to that area. So, you know, it should be everywhere in Australia, but unfortunately it's a long process where it has to go through court systems and, and takes a long time. Mm. But then I guess that allows Aboriginal people to, to connect with places more, to have that peace of mind that we are getting acknowledged for being the traditional custodians of this part of the world. Is it just a symbolic act or does it give you extra rights and accessibilities? Yeah, it, it does. So we, there is land use agreements where people can use land, um, traditionally hunt for food sources, use land for ceremonies and, and cultural purposes. But in the sense of like in these areas here, it doesn't really change too much. But we do have a really um, great vision in, within the community to see how that looks like for for Yagle country. And I know there's some, a good crew of people with plans in place that um, are going to put some things for our future generations to mm-hmm. connect with. But, yeah, I'd love personally to see some more acknowledgement of Aboriginal people's occupants and connection to places such as the point and mm. Lennox Head, the point up at Lennox and, mm. you know, Crescent and places like that. Because mm. we also want people to come visit places, um, but we also want people to be respectful and and also realise that there is a past here and sometimes that past may not be so positive. It's, mm. You know, it might have some the pain or some trauma attached to that. So just be mindful mm. <laughs> of entering these spaces and mm. yeah yeah and I mean I mean just to flesh out that point a little bit it's like imagine going and running and having your kids digging in a cemetery where your ancestors yeah. are born for indigenous people in this area there are many sites mm. that are recreational sites that mm. are also the sites of massacres yeah and, and they aren't acknowledged and um and that's yeah. not right. No, it's not. And that's some of the stuff I think needs to be acknowledged more mm. so we can... The pain. The, yeah, heal the pain and, and move forward as a people. We all know that silence yeah. and forcing people to keep ignoring the realities of ancestral trauma is not the way through. Yeah, mm. definitely. And that's something I guess our country needs to focus on more Um, but yeah I think with people being empowered and connecting to places and enhancing their identity as Aboriginal people strengthens that story or that urge or that push for action so it's you know I guess as I said before as a being a coastal man and my ancestors being coastal people it's so good and refreshing to, to connect with the coast and knowing that my people have gone through so much hardship and pain, how can I honour them in a way that continues my culture and their legacy? 
You're such a beacon of hope. That's what so many people have said about you as we've prepared to sit and chat with you, Mick, that you are just masterful at um, spinning a positive, hopeful light of the future for country here and, and your relationship with country here. I'm just so interested in your roles and responsibilities as a man of this country. You've taken this great leap in sharing your culture, sharing some of your story with people like us, with complete outsiders, with people who maybe have lineage connected to the people that came and decimated your people. That is a massive, massive leap. And I'm just interested to know how you make sense of that position and what you feel like your role and your responsibility is in healing, I guess. Yeah. I guess it's something that I would have to kind of endure my whole life and, and in different ways and during different stages of my life. Mm. But um, I guess there was a time where I was really kind of bitter and angry about things and and I'm sure that's a process that a lot of Aboriginal people go through. Um, but, yeah, and it was something that I was holding on to and, and really turned into something that didn't sit well in my body or my way of thinking. So I kind of looked at things and connected with things that made me feel like a strong Aboriginal man, I guess, in regards to connecting with country, connecting with learning song and language and dance and, and just creating that energy of, how that enhances my life um, and how that in, adds value to my friends' lives and my family and my, I guess, and my kids. And that's the story I've, I found that suited me the best. So that's the story that I want to continue to learn mm. and share. Mm. But yeah, as I said before as well, it's, it's, it goes in waves and but with them waves usually come some great lessons and learning mm. about how I want to hold myself and how I want to honour them old people and share that story with who wants to listen, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the major aspects of um, your sharing, as you just shared with our little boy Minnow, was some local language. Yeah. You shared with him some little flashcards yeah. of the Jaeger language, which is a technically extinct language. What does that mean if people are still speaking it? I'm wondering. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I know, how can that's... it be extinct? It doesn't mean as a there, there aren't people who are speaking it fluently all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's... There, there is some old records of Yagi language um, and we're lucky to have some audio of old man Uncle Sandy Cameron speaking language. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's, it's not extinct, but in the sense of, I guess, languages in Australia, um, if they aren't spoken or learnt um, or revitalised, that's mm. the risk you run and and it's happened for a lot of languages around this country. We do have a number of people in the community now wanting to revitalise language and it's beginning to create some momentum. So mm. it's about working with other 
organisations and people who are who have done that well and and see how they can kind of uh, support us in doing that. Um, but yeah, we have we have language, we have people learning language, and we have people, um, I guess, wanting to share that. And we also want to strengthen that for our future generations. It's a really exciting time, I guess, for people wanting to learn that and develop that because it just invokes something that's inside you that has this instant connection with the land and the people that walked here before us. So Mm. that's the feeling I like when I connect and learn with my language is I'm speaking my country here and I'm speaking how my old people's talked and and that understands me I guess I understand that Mm. so it's getting better Lauren I think people are starting to see the value of how we can develop programs to share with kids and and teach kids Mm. and to teach people the crew down cost the Goombanga crew have done a, a really great job with Uncle Miklo Jarrett and Clarkie Webb and, and Nathan Brennan, really good friends of mine who have, and other people in the community who have really grasped the Goombanga language and wanting that to be a really important community way of learning and mm. sharing that and, mm. and having that as like, hey, we have fluent speakers of Goombanga now down there, which is amazing. So there is hope and it's about connecting with people who have done it right before mm. and how can they support other people, other mobs to enhance their language and in, in community. Mm. So, yeah, I'd love to be speaking fluent one day and, and seeing that a lot of people speak fluent mm. in one day and it will happen. Um, mm. I'm hopeful of that. It's just going to take some time. But, yeah, I think we're a strong, resilient bunch of people around here and as, as Aboriginal people are strong and resilient all over this country. So I guess we just need to be patient in that space and, mm. and play our roles. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Mick, I, I have a, a bit of a curiosity about, about how in these fast-moving modern times, how mm. we do, you were speaking about how good it feels to jump in your um, four-wheel and drive through country and stuff. Yeah. And that a lot of us in this country will drive hours to go visit family and, and cross many lines yep. of country, many new cultures, new ecologies, new areas as we do that. Mm. And I've learned a little about how there's protocol and there are processes and ways yep. to do that respectfully and in acknowledgement of the fact that yeah. we are moving into new areas and so I I wanted to just quiz you a little bit about that and how that system perhaps worked before there was cars going 110 on the highway (laughs) and then how that's navigated now and how people how we can move respectfully with each other as we do travel Mm. this big island in this modern time for sure yeah I guess traditionally Aboriginal people have always walked and all around the country and shared and sat with other language groups and mobs and we've seen the commonalities in it in our ways and we've shared stories. Mm. Um, so yeah, we 
And we'd done that in a way where we celebrated that as well. We'd always have responsibility and obligation to visitors. So to play host to someone that was coming up from the coast, I guess our responsibilities here would be to welcome them, to make sure that their camp is good, their stay is going to be good, mm-hmm. where our significant sites are. We'd also adhere to our kinship systems where we would place people within our camps to transfer knowledge or make sure we're not breaking any laws, mm. but also giving people a piece of that puzzle in regards to our story. Mm. So, yeah, traditionally it would be a celebration of, of <laughs> I guess, the human experience and our mm. story. So, yeah, but now I guess when we travel a country, back to where we are talking about more of exposure of traditional lands and the people of the lands, um, I guess it's still a young space and hopefully we as people and society in the country can acknowledge that further and enhance that connection and that respect aspect of when we're travelling country. But um, for people, I guess, who are wanting to learn about that in, in a way, it's it's about educating, I guess, and mm. having that conversation with who you may be travelling with and, mm. and just maybe pausing for a moment or pulling up and taking things slower and appreciating mm. country. Mm. You may not have to have the, the sense of whose country that is or belongs to, but you could... You but you know, could very easily find that out. You could find that out, yeah, or you can just kind of sit in them spaces and pay a country a respect and then, yeah have that conversation. It, I find kids is a great one. I, I love talking to my kids when we're driving through country and then just saying which country we're going through and we talk about our neighbours or our people who used to walk through here, we're driving through here. And so, yeah, it's a nice dialogue to kind of go by in regards to educating mm. people. Mm. And also really having them hard conversations as well if, like you said too, Lauren, there's... Unfortunately, there's a lot of massacres around um, this country and, and it's about acknowledging them too and, mm. and, and saying that, yeah, what, it, must, it wasn't right and it must have been so terrifying for those people back there and having an understanding of that gives you a deeper layer of compassion towards Aboriginal people's journey. How do you explain what happened to your children? I don't know if they're old enough to have had those conversations, but how do you make sense of that for, yeah. for children? It's it's something, I guess, I've, I haven't had a conversation with my younger children about that, but um, for my older ch- children, yeah, it's it can be a, um, a hard conversation, but it's got to be linked in to how our people were treated in a way, and so... Also, my responsibility, as I mentioned before, was as I was a bit of a bitter person in regards to that and that process. Rightfully I'm sure so. Yeah, rightfully so. Yeah. Normal for a lot of Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. But going through that has changed me in regards to what story I want to share. But I'm also mindful of if I was to share that story with young people, what's my responsibility? as a mentor or an elder to some of the younger people I'm working with. Mm. 
to not leave a damaging effect to, to them, um, but also making sure that I'm there to support and and what's the dialogue I want to share so they don't become a person they may not want to be or mm. involved in something they may may be detrimental to their learning or something along that line. Notice sides. that about Indigenous storytellers, how you, well, the ones that I've met are masterful readers of the room, mm-hmm. knowing what to reveal and when and mm. who's ready to receive what <laughs> and never giving it all, quite all away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a sure. beautiful, beautiful gift. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And that's, you know, and that's paying respect to the person's learning as well and their journey. Um, yeah, it is, and I'm sure a lot of old people, you know, around this country have have shared a lot of story and, sh- and haven't shared a lot of story to people. And, yeah. and um, yeah, I've been around a lot of old people who share story with you and and give you dribs and drabs later uh, <laughs> of the story, and it's it's really beautiful process of learning because mm. with our knowledge, you've got to digest it, like, you know, digest them lessons then reflect on them then then you know possibly live them absorb them then that's when them lessons can come fully into your life Mm, that really is a example of that living lineage of learning yeah that goes so far back yeah that that is a proven way to pass on knowledge yeah like you know we've got what do you got you got a couple hundred years of Europeans creating these box buildings and these intense learning environments and you sit inside and even you, books. You read <laughs> yeah, through books, yeah, you know, yeah. and you just barrage and you repeat and you barrage and you you know, repetition, repetition, learning and all of that. And you're um, talking about a completely different way this yeah. is a totally of interacting way. with yeah, information. Yeah, for sure. And I would have to say for me who is um, pretty uh, academically stunted and repelled by institutions of learning, um, being able to sit and yeah. and be shoulder to shoulder and be looking out over a country, looking out over a surf spot or a coast or the hills, whatever we're a part of, and hearing a little bit, and a little bit of perspective, a little bit of history, yeah. but in that place is so effective for someone like me and for my brain and my body (laughs) and my bones to soak it up. Yeah. And I just feel that that is so rich and so wonderful and is such a beautiful way to learn and to share. Yeah. I think going back to Indigenous ways of learning and knowledge transference has been the best system that has probably ever graced this world in regards to... It's the most refined. It's the most refined. And, <laughs> you know, I guess we're not, you know, it's about that whole experience. So you're sitting with people, you're, you're like you said, Dave, you're absorbing it, you're feeling it, your senses are going off. You're, you're in these places of just beauty and you're absorbing all that and you're listening to story and you're feeling it with the, the sand or the dirt underneath your feet and it's entering mm. you. So it's a whole body way of learning. And, mm. and when you can learn like that, it's it's real, you know. It's mm. it's a real way of learning and being, and and it gives you that sense of being wholesome. And and then you connect with people who are like that as well. And mm. but yeah, I, I think you know when Europeans come here, you know, with their records and their writings of seeing us as savages or 
you know, it's it wasn't the case because we had this really elaborate way of teaching and sharing that is was far more advanced than European systems in regards to sharing knowledge and teaching mm. and creating mm. responsibility and obligation with someone and purpose, you know, like with our roles it gave a lot of responsibility and obligation to people then that then give them purpose as humans to to share and connect with mm. places and, and things and and mentor and guide. So unfortunately a lot of people these days um, you know, and I'm being guilty of it, of finding what's my purpose here in life. And a lot of them things have been stunted from possibly the way we learn and the way the modern education system is. Um, it mm. often delays the, the time it takes to find your purpose and what am I here for? So mm. whereas in Aboriginal knowledge transference, we, we sat and you were given story from a young age and that story just started to grow and develop along the way and then mm. so did your, your purpose mm. as a person and then you had this beautiful life that you lived from birth to death filled with purpose and connection and where do I fit in in this world? You knew where you fit in in this world mm. <laughs> from birth to death. Yeah. Wow. And isn't there such a broad yearning for that now mm. as anxiety levels go through the roof, mm. as depression, self-harm, yeah. suicide, so much trauma and suffering yeah. and so much dislocation. Yeah. Know, people not being where they are, uh, us not having the opportunity to fully embody where it is we are yeah you know even if you have grown up in the same house your whole childhood mm. and you don't know the story of the point down the road mm. what it really has been called who really has lived there for so long and that's such an important everything. point for not being so hard on ourselves if we do feel that way because we haven't been given mm. the information on exactly. how to belong sure. we haven't been interwoven with those stories since yeah. we were babies and so yeah. it's important to take it easy on ourselves yeah and then also sure. step forward yeah and start to take initiative to yeah, learn for sure um, yeah and I, I think that's been changing a lot as well mm. so you know like we mentioned before about when um andy and myself had spent some time with you guys it was it was really cool because we could feel people's yearning and being grounded and, and wanting to learn and, and absorbing all that knowledge that we were sharing. And, and that's, again, goes back to Andy and I's responsibility. And it doesn't mean, like, I guess you have to be Aboriginal to deeply connect with these places, but everyone has their own sense of connection to places. But having that traditional story and what values come with that and the morals and the mm. connection to country really enhances that that story mm. to the individual. Then, you know, like it just can open up so many things. Like Aboriginal people had that story and have that connection with, with country and then we can kind of connect with other people that have that same story that, you know, may want to advocate for Mother Earth and, and country and and stop things that may be harming her. So, and that's a good story, I guess, that unity and 
people coming together. Mm. It's not a different story from our past that we've always done it here. So hopefully we can recreate a story that fits the trajectory we want to go in as people in the future. Mm. One really, like, just awe-inspiring example of the parallel stories is um, looking up at the night sky. Mm. I remember being up in um, Yonggu country in Arnhem Land and learning about the emu. Mm. And I just couldn't believe what a profound paradigm shift it was to look up in the night sky and and for the stories to have been woven not around the brightness of the stars but around the the darkness mm. the dark patches yeah. in the sky and seeing shapes in the sky and I just thought oh my gosh what a, an incredible <laughs> metaphor for these parallel stories that in no way detract from one another yeah. in fact they enhance one another yeah you know you can have indigenous storylines and you know, really modern Greek yeah. storytelling of constellations living side by side and they in no way take away from one another. That's right, yeah. And that goes back to our stories in this country there. We had a lot of story and mobs had lots of stories and it was around when we walked and shared those stories, it was seeing the commonality in those stories we might might be vastly different in regards to content and which path direction that story is, but they would often just hear the values and the morals and the stories of how we treat each other and how we respect women or how we respect that tree or how we respect that animal. And so that's all the layers of that story that they would hear. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that people can learn from, not only here in Australia, but around the world of like, mm. well, our stories are similar how can we connect or how can we heal from these spaces that create that sense of unity and healing in mm. a way, yeah. I like that you bring up the night sky one, um, <laughs> Lav, because through the middle part of the calendar year in the eastern sky at the start of the night, Minnow and I go out nearly every night yeah. and look for Maui's hook oh, or yeah. Scorpio. Yeah and uh, that constellation and that's another example of that it's like we can look at that constellation as Scorpio and that goes back to Greek myth and perspective or we just blink or don't even have to blink but just change our perspective Mm. in between the ears somehow and all of a sudden it's Maui's hook fishing out the islands in the Pacific Mm. out of the water and he just lights up, mm. and so do I. We're looking yeah. at that, and it's just this wonderful coexistence of story. Yeah, yeah. And that really helps for us Yeah. in the experience of daily life where there are many layers to mm. experience, and especially at this point now where mm. a lot of people are putting up walls and dividing mm. And hearing uh, someone else's story and going, that's not my story, I'm not hanging out with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's about health <laughs> or vaccines or whatever whatever it is, yeah. it seems like there's plenty of opportunities for us to put up those walls right now yeah, and sure. not respectfully acknowledge each other's differing stories. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and it's crucial that we don't do that. Mm. And in that's fact, been done before. the telling of story is about breaking down the barriers between self and the living world, which yeah. is what in Western culture we've been terribly 
good <laughs> at separating ourselves from the living world. And yeah. these kind of stories are about making us a part of that we've grown from the living world. We're not something separate or more than. Yeah, that's um, it. That's why I love those mm. moments that we have with Minnow and yeah. getting to learn For more sure. from you, Mick. It's just yeah. like, how do we weave ourselves back in? Yeah. How do we get back in? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I... Um, yeah, that's that's really cool to hear, Dave. I guess so then that's a really cool experience you have with Minnow, and mm-hmm. and to see his face light up and you light up, like that just goes to show, like if you're looking at things in a different perspective, the amount of energy and learning that comes from that, and it sparks, you know, mm-hmm. it sparks that, and people, that's the spark we need in in mm-hmm. a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Rico, do you, do you feel? Um Getting back to a little bit of the steps forward and ways we can do better, for a while now I've kind of been excited about the the idea of the significant places for surfers Mm. along the coastline here that have really inappropriate names Mm. or have very inaccurate stories being retold Mm. and the success of dual naming Mm. that's happening like up our way you have nothing gully for mm. Jul- and julian rocks yep. on all the signage along the shoreline for people to read yep. those stories uh Wollumbin, for example mm. gavin bar for byron and of course for me from new zealand that's everywhere yeah with um pakia whitefella and maori names mm. and so i just wanted to see what your thoughts were around that phenomena that's happening and the potential for that to happen with these key surf spots like yeah. you mentioned Lennox Head yeah and you go to the top of the headland there mm. where the car park is and there's a sign that says Pat Morton Lookout mm. and mm. he's some councillor guy that just probably wrote his name on mm. something to mm. overtake other people to overtake the land and yeah. that his name's all over the top of that headland. Yeah, yeah. And just doesn't feel right or other surf spots that are called widows or dead men's. Yeah. Or and that's quite true throughout the surfing world. It's yeah. actually, Terrible I remember feeling that, that being yeah. in Indonesia and just being like, oh my gosh, there's <laughs> no connection to the actual living people who yeah. are here, much less the the traditional people yeah. here. And, and that, I guess, is sort of bringing around that point that you were making, Davey, of the importance of recognising mm. local naming and how powerful language and naming in particular is and how For it's sure. one step we can probably all contribute to is learning Definitely. a local yeah. name for our surf mm. spots. For Sorry. sure, yeah. And yeah. That's, that's, that's right. You know, it's about gaining that momentum and that self-learning, then connecting to places, no doubt. Surfers have a, a really deep connection to the water and to the areas, but I guess playing your role of like well if I enjoy this place what's my responsibility to learn about it mm. and then maybe connect with people that and have that conversation of like how do we dual name things or have traditional names for places or and it's it's conversational stuff I mm. guess as well like if you hear maybe just having conversations with people around that. But, yeah, I'd love to see naming of places and significant places um, Mm. and storyboards. So just Mm. to get people to think, hey, it's not just a surfing spot, but what else is this place about and what else does it Mm. offer me or Mm. what else can I, how can I offer something back to this place? Um, So, yeah. And it also as well, like, it creates, I guess, harmony in places as well, like, I know surfing can be really, I guess, 
the culture around things can be really archaic in a sense in regards to some of that old ways of thinking. Mm. And Lauren, you know, you wrote that article <laughs> about in that surfing world, which is amazing around um, women and accessing places and um, some of the stuff that women had to put up with. Um, but yeah, I think having story may make people feel a bit more humility and respect around places. Yeah. How um, absurd does localism, the idea yeah. of white localism, yeah. <laughs> seems so absurd in the context of 50 or 100,000 years of yeah. prior inhabitants. Yeah. And so deeply disrespectful. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, and that's something, I guess, that I'd love more people to have an awareness of, um, of saying, like, hey, <laughs> again, like, this is a a place that's got so much history. Mm. It's not just a place where localism comes in, where you've been here for, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. 20 years or whatever. Or yeah. it's, And that's a common phrase that people have, you know, I've been here for 20 years. It's like, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> well <nothing>. done. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, but, yeah. you know, um, I'd love to kind of have more women in the water, like more... Aboriginal faces in the water and mm. more acceptance and more empathy for some of the stuff that Aboriginal people endured in these places and thinking of, like, just being present in these places and ha- being aware, like, these are really nice places, they're beautiful mm. and I'm not going to let my ego get in the way <laughs> of, you know, of my connection to this place and maybe I should be a bit more kinder or gentler out in the water or... Mm. Um, be more open to learning so yeah i'd like to see that space in, me too you know so me yeah too. well interestingly i guess um in surf culture in archaic surf culture as you put it which <laughs> i totally agree with women and and i guess non-white men are referred to as minorities when in fact like yeah. <laughs> we would be the majority yeah, yeah you know what i mean like brown faces and women would outnumber Young white men, <laughs> by <laughs> yeah. far, if yeah. we were going to do a head count. Yeah, so maybe sure. we can organize some mass paddle out and <laughs> yeah. just change the dynamics of lineups. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, but it, it would be a really great space in the future for that to happen. And I, I know it's coming. It's just going to take some time and hopefully our future generations will see and experience all them changes and, and be deeper connected to places and having that story that deserves to be shared and known about, mm. whether that be good or bad, so people can respect country more. Mm. Mm. One of the reasons we wanted to chat with you, Mick, was to talk about your beautiful music. Yeah. And now you've just released a piece of music with... And are you singing in Yegir? Um, it's a bit, I'm singing in Gumbanga and okay. it's a bit of Yagir in there as well. Okay. There's a few crossover words. Well, so. it would be probably the first modern song released in <laughs> yeah. language. Yeah, like, um, I'd say so. Like, I know there's some really good artists around here, but to have it solely in language, I think it's the first time something's been done like that. So, yeah, it's something I'm really proud of and and so stoked that people are really connecting with it and and enjoying it. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> this is the first of many, you feel? Yeah. You feel like it's something you want to keep rolling with? Definitely. Yeah. I, um, Murray Patterson, um, 
the main man behind Headland is, a, is such a good good friend and so, so much knowledge. So we, we speak and we always kind of throw things, ideas back and forth. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're hoping to do more. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's got a – Nura's got a great response and, you know, I owe a lot to Ryan to kind of approach me and and ask where I was thinking around doing some – some music for their surf films, the Lost Track surf films with Torrin Martin and um, done for with, with Ishka Folkwall. So, yeah, it was a good, it was a massive honour in that sense, but bigger picture stuff, it was so, um, I'm still kind of breaking it down on how important it is to, to share something solely in language on the East Coast. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I'm so proud. <laughs> yeah. You should be, brother. It's yeah. so beautiful. Mm. And I also feel like location, like where you are, who you are here, and and that this area has has a real place. If the surfing culture around the world it was an organism, I feel mm. like this is one of like the primary organs of that organism, that body is yeah. is Angari, this spot here, mm. it is a very cherished, very special place mm. held in the hearts of a lot of people who surf. And, mm. you know, just things like that there's no big contests here, there's no big commodification mm. of that, that specific place there in ways that, you know, Kira's and mm. Bell's Beaches and lots of other places have sort of been um, used mm. in that way. Uh, just speaks to this this the real everywhere is special but the the specialness that's yeah. still that is here and that you are there and that people are listening to those words yeah and feeling that and the images too they're so beautiful that go along with that yeah um, thank film you. clip yeah and i just think that's yeah i think it, there's a lot of tie-ins there that are really yeah. really meaningful for sure i mean a lot to people yeah definitely and you know what, like I'll always be a, a cultural man and hold my culture so high in my life because it's a part of who I am and I really wanted to share that in every aspect of that song um, and showcase that in the film clip as well mm. so people can kind of mm. see that. And so, yeah, as I said, like it's been a massive privilege in doing that and it's given me so much value and enhance my identity so much um as a man to do that so mm. and i've always loved sharing culture um whether that be going to schools and doing workshops and um, language and dance and going to events and performing or but yeah this one is like this the music is a, a new direction and a new layer of my development and yeah it's really exciting i um I light up when I talk about it and mm. it really just gives me another layer of my story and what story I want to share to people. Mm. So, yeah, music can really touch people and we've been getting some really nice feedback about it from people all over the world, which is really nice. So, yeah. You can learn more about Mick and his music on Instagram at Music. That's at M-A-A-N-Y-U-N-G underscore music. 
Special thanks to Patagonia for making this episode possible. They're a certified B Corporation and founding member of 1% for the planet. Many thanks to our sound engineer and editor, Shannon Sol Carroll. The podcast soundtracks are also composed by Shannon, and mix song Nora is also featured in this episode. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. We'll be continuing the conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcast. Oh